You're listening to City Church Long Beach Sermons. Visit us at citychurchlongbeach.org. Finishing up a series on the book of Ruth. Uh, It actually concludes next week. And uh, we are in chapter four. And today we're going to going to wrestle with some trickier issues. It's going to be perhaps a bit more academic even. Um, You know, we go back and forth. Last week, we told a ton of stories uh, about blessing and try to get real practical. What does this look like in people's lives? And and today, we're going to try to look under the hood at some of the, the ideas, the scripture that motivates our work for justice and helps us think about um, who God is and and how God works and what the Bible is. Um, And particularly, we're going to be looking at the Bible and how the Bible is just a really um, awkward book. So there's my daughter waving my daughter. Hi, Carrie. (laughs) Um, And uh, as we look at the Bible, I, I want to start with a kind of two pictures. Uh, one is just a story, and the second is a couple of quotes. But uh, last week I had a conversation with a Christian man who told me that uh, he says that Black Lives Matters um, is not biblical. It's not, it's not biblical because the Bible says all lives matter. And in this same conversation, he told me that that everyone of a certain political persuasion um, is following Satan. And and he was actually a a genuinely, he was trying to express his Christian faith. Um, He he talked openly about trying to follow Jesus. Um, But there was this this othering. using the Bible against people. And when it comes to the Black Lives Matter comments and our brief conversation around that, um, you know, it's just super hard because the Bible is weird and the Bible does strange things. And so how we handle the Bible really matters. It really matters. And sometimes the Bible doesn't help us that much. Uh, we're going to look at a passage today where you, you look at the Bible and you think, ooh, wow, this is awkward. Um, so I want to think for just a minute a little bit about how we use the Bible. And in the, in the passage today, um, Boaz, who's one of the, he's the male lead in, in our story, he wrestles with the Bible and uses it in a very distinctive way, a very unusual way. But the Bible has been used both to um, perpetuate injustice and to push for uh, liberation and for justice. It's, it's been used both. And so I want to quote to... I just, I found these two voices really helpful from the end of last century, two voices out of Africa, uh, two key leaders, 
talking about how the Bible has been used. So one is uh, Jomo Kenyatta, who was the uh, president of Kenya, who, I mean, he really was the one who took Kenya from a British colony and made it into an independent nation. Um, and, you know, as you read his history, you know, layered for sure. Um, some people would say he ended up becoming a dictator, but uh, just a key leader um, in, in that part of Africa. But he wrote this. He said, when the missionaries arrived, the Africans had the land and the missionaries had the Bible. They taught us to pray with our eyes closed. When we opened them, they had the land and we had the Bible. He's trying to articulate like with British imperialism came the Bible, or maybe the Bible came with British imperialism. And, and it didn't go well for the Africans. It was used to subjugate. It was used to uh, enslave. Another key leader in Africa at the end of last century, uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who is crucial in the fight against injustice in South Africa. He wrote this, and this is a different perspective. There's nothing more radical, nothing more revolutionary, nothing more subversive against injustice and oppression than the Bible. If you want to keep people subjugated, the last thing you place in their hands is a Bible. Now, when I, when I grew up as a Christian in a good, white, evangelical, middle-class, very sort of patriotic American culture, I had heard the Desmond Tutu quote before, um, but it was always used as a means of saying, well, the Bible is great, the Bible is perfect. But it's actually only when you hear it in the context of the Jomo Kenyatta quote, where you realize, oh no, this is hard fought. And the justice that he's talking about is often the kind of justice that is working against how people who claimed to be Christians have oppressed those, particularly those with black skin. Also women, sexual minorities, I mean, all kinds of people right? The Bible has been used to other people regularly. And there's this tension, and we're going to unpack that more today. So we're looking at a text in, in the book of Ruth that you, I mean, you may not find it particularly inspirational. It is a genealogy after all. A lot of people don't find genealogies that fascinating. I think it's awesome. And we're going to have a great conversation about it because it really unearths some of the things that we're talking about. And I'm going to have to unpack it. So I'm going to let Gabe Francis is going to read our scripture for us today. Wish him luck with the words. Now, this is at the end of the book of Ruth where, uh, where Boaz has finally taken Ruth's lead, has responded to her proposal to marriage, and they have they're, they're getting married, and then this is their genealogy. So uh, I'll hand it over to you, Gabe, as we read Scripture today. Ruth 4, 13, 18-22. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, 
the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram uh, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. People of God, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Gabe. Appreciate you uh, working on those names. Um, so here, this is, these are the closing lines of the book of Ruth. And it ends with David, the great king. He was the you know, biggest name um, for a thousand years in the Old Testament. Uh, he, he is the great king. He wrote so many of the Psalms. He expanded the kingdom. Um, he was called a, man's after, a man after God's own heart. And, and so Boaz is part of the, the lineage that gets to David. And so in some ways, this is saying like, wow, this is so great that Boaz and Ruth got married, they had kids, and, um, and just three generations later, you have David. Clearly, this is the hand of God. This is good. Uh, and the way it's placed in the text right after all the blessings that we looked at um, last week, it is, it is clearly the hand of God. The challenge is, according to the Bible, it never should have happened. According to the Bible, Boaz never should have married Ruth. It's only because of Boaz's creative interpretation of Scripture that this is even a possibility that David, the great king, the greatest king, ever came into existence. Because in the last book of the law, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 23, the Bible is very clear about how God views people from Moab. Okay? So Ruth, seven times, it talks about Ruth coming from Moab, and seven times in, in the book of Ruth, it says that Ruth was a Moabite. All right, it's super clear. I mean, it's sort of the magical number seven is kind of a big biblical number. It comes up twice emphasizing well, she is super Moab. Like, she is so Moab. And this is what Deuteronomy 23, verse 3 says. No Ammonite or Moabite, or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even to the 10th generation. Look, look that over again. It's in your chat. No Moabite, or their kids, or grandkids, or great-grandkid like David, right? David's great-grandchild of Ruth, may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even for 10 generations. It's forbidden. It's super clear. It's in the Bible. So what do we do? What do we do with the fact that Boaz married Ruth and he had children and they had children and they had David and that the book of Ruth is set up 
to, to point to this as a great success. This is the tension that we wrestle with when it comes to the Bible, friends. Because Boaz did not follow that scripture. And he is, he is the male hero of this story. But he did not follow the Bible. In fact, it was, it was the very fact that he didn't follow the Bible that makes him a hero. Now, some of us, we don't come from out of a Christian tradition, uh, you know, city church, we're a super diverse crowd of folks, totally fine. We're like, okay, yeah, that's, that's cool. But others of us, we come from a tradition where we, we love the Bible. We, we honor it. We think, man, all we have to do is follow the Bible and we're fine. And so this is really unnerving. This is disorienting to hear Boaz specifically not follow the Bible and that being like the big, like, great job, Boaz, in not following the Bible. Like that, that makes me as a Christian feel weird. And, and probably there are a lot of folks on this call that are like, oh, I don't know about that. What do I do? What do I do? You know, Bill's saying bad things about the Bible. I'm actually not. <laughs> the Bible's saying bad things about the Bible. I'm just pointing it out. What, uh, what Boaz has done here, it's, it's super interesting. Um, there's a, a movement in theology called liberation theology, which uh, is really, you know, we talked maybe two or three weeks ago about this idea that um, <clears throat> justice is what love looks like in public. Remember that, that quote um, from the, the American theologian? Justice is what love looks like in public. And this, this idea um, that, that liberation is really part of this justice doing, of this loving, of following uh, the call of Christ. So liberation theology <clears throat> is a segment of theology that focuses on, you know, what does it look like to do justice more broadly. And there's a woman from our church named Nicole Machtrow, who's probably on the call somewhere. Um, and N Nicole gave me the invitation to join her in reading a book called Mujerista Theology, which is uh, Latina theology or feminist um, Hispanic theology, kind of from that perspective, looking at Jesus and, and his work in the world and setting people free. And so we just started the book this week, and this is what Ada Maria uh, Isasi Diaz says in this book. Um, she says, liberation, and I think, uh, hey, Kevin, it's a couple slides down. Sorry, my notes are a little bit messy today for Kevin. There you go. Thanks, Kevin. Liberation is not something one person can give another, uh, but it is a process in which the oppressed are protagonists. That means they're the main characters participants in creating a reality different from the present oppressive one. And what you see is this is what Boaz is doing. Boaz is actually not liberating Ruth, even though she's a woman, she's from Moab, she's an immigrant, she has no job, she's, you know, speaks with an accent, all these sort of things that would marginalize her. 
what he's doing is he's actually participating with Ruth. And that's been the whole story of the summer that's been so fascinating is watching Ruth take the lead and Boaz join in and to see this liberation where Ruth becomes the protagonist. She's the main character of the story. And she is part of creating this reality that's different than the present oppressive one. Because as in most ancient cultures and most modern cultures, to be a woman, you, don't, you aren't treated with as much privilege and preference as if you're a man. And if you're an immigrant, same thing. If your skin color is different than whoever is in majority, again, you don't have that privilege. And the work of Jesus is this work of, of shifting the current reality into one that more closely aligns to the kingdom of God, of what Jesus called the kingdom of heaven, what, what it's like in heaven and bringing that to earth. And so what Boaz does is Boaz, he tracks with this. He's got this inside of him. He understands that, okay, yes, I, I see Deuteronomy 23.1. Boaz was a smart guy. He clearly a godly man. He quotes scripture. Um, he clearly understands that this is in the law. It's not that he's somehow unaware. It's just he recognizes that there are other pieces of law, for example, in Leviticus 18, where it says, um, love your neighbor as yourself. And there's this vi these, these visions of Abraham becoming righteous because of his faith, not because of what he, would, what he did or even because of circumcision, which was sort of the main Jewish construct around cultural identity and religious identity at that point in time. Boaz, he, he dived in deep to the deep principles and realized, no, this is, this is what God is like. And yes, there were some issues with Moab. Um, there were some competing gods. There were these if you read through the Old Testament history, you realize, okay, I, I can understand maybe how that was written in a certain context, but that's not God's heart. What's interesting is if, if you look at the, just the beginning of Deuteronomy 23, right? So verse three is this about no Moab, uh, no one, no Moabite is allowed into, um, to worship with God's people and their children are not either. Right? And this is what Boaz breaks when he, when he marries Ruth and has children. But in, in the first verse of Deuteronomy 23, it talks specifically, actually this is a, a, a verse that is used sometimes in conversations around being transgender. So this is what Deuteronomy 23.1 says. It says, no one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. Interesting. And the very next verse says this in Deuteronomy 23.2. No one born of a forbidden marriage, and the Hebrew there is really someone with an illegitimate birth whose parents are not married, nor any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even to the 10th generation. So the, the piece about Moabites being excluded is part of a larger context of, hey, we're going to exclude a lot of people. And notice that typically it's those who are on the margins, 
who are being excluded, those with actually less privilege. And again, you can do some of the deep work under this and say, okay, well, what are some of the, the issues about um, you know, eunuchs in, in the ancient world and, and how people would uh, emasculate others. And, you know, there's power things there. So maybe that's what's going on. And the, and the illegitimate birth thing can be about, well, we want to protect marriage. And I mean, it, I mean, there can be some principles going on here for sure. But what happens is, and you and I know this, is we oversimplify. We grab a quote from the Bible and we make it say, we say, hey, it, this, it's just a simple reading of the Bible. That's what, that's what our founding fathers did when it came to slavery. It's in the Bible. When it came to the extermination of Native Americans, literally, Time and time again, the Christian ministers who are in the British colonies would say, well, in the Bible, they exterminated men, women, and children. And so we can do that also. They literally said that over and over again. I can share quotes with you. There's a sense in which we can come to the Bible with our agenda and we can prove it. I wanted to take your land. I can find a way to do that using the Bible to justify it. I want to possess you as a human being. I want to own you to make me money, to build my plantations, to build my national monuments. And we can use the Bible to justify that. And so it's no wonder, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that statistically speaking, on, on sort of scientific index, indexes of what racism is, that Christians are more racist than non-religious people. Like this, is, this is just what the studies show. So this is, this is problematic for us, right? And we, we have Boaz here who's pushing against the grain. Who's saying, I actually, I'm reading deep in scripture. I'm reading about God's love and that we're all made in God's image. And I am marrying Ruth, even though she's from Moab. And God blesses him. God blesses him. Because ultimately what Boaz is doing is he's, <clears throat> he's tapping into what scripture is ultimately about, which is that scripture is not about itself and it's not meant to be used to other people to, to grab power. <clears throat> It actually all points to, to Christ in the end. It's, 
you know, the, the Bible is, see, well, let me, so C.S. Lewis, um, kind of a great, um, m- many folks in the, in the evangelical tradition love C.S. Lewis. And this is how he puts it. And I think it's really helpful. He says, it's Christ himself, not the Bible, who is the true word of God. The Bible read in the right spirit and with the guidance of good teachers will bring us to him. The Bible's actually about, about Jesus. And that's what Boaz gets, even though Boaz is, you know, good gracious. I mean, 1,200 years before Christ. Boaz is tapping into the spirit of Christ. That's what he's tapping into. And then in Christ, there's, there's the true human, and we all get to become human like Jesus. We're all valued, all loved, every one of us. And ultimately, our goal is not to follow the Bible. It's to follow Christ. And we love the Bible, and the Bible is a gift in helping us follow Christ. But it's not the goal. And ultimately, it's Jesus who is the foundation of the church. It's not the Bible. The Bible helps us get to Jesus, which is great. But it's a super important distinction. Later in in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul is reflecting on on these things. And I I mean, if you listen to this, this is from uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. Paul is taking one of the core elements of what it meant to be a believer, to, to be Jewish, which is this, the covenant of circumcision, circumcision, which in Genesis chapter, te- chapter 17, God says, I'm going to make an everlasting covenant. Everlasting. This is what God says. Look it up. And you'll, you'll circumcise your male sons, and that's a sign of faith. And that's how you'll know you'll be part of the family of faith. And this is what Paul says in Galatians 5. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. It doesn't matter. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. There's this move away from the externals into the internals, looking at the, at the deep foundation of what scripture is, which is God loves us. We're the beloved. Treat people like that. You know, Paul takes it even a step further, and this is very unnerving to us, those of us who, I mean, it's just tricky. It's just tricky. We want to have a moral system, and we should. And the Bible should help us figure out that moral system. Absolutely. But the Bible is crazy radical. Listen, listen now to Romans 13, 9, where Paul has been arguing about all the different commandments. And he's trying to say, look, let me, let's get to what really, 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 really matters, which is what Boaz did. And this is what he says in Romans 13, 9. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. These are the big 10 commandments, right? And whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. This is the Apostle Paul. And he's saying, look, let's stay focused, people. 
Are we really loving people here? Are we really loving people? Because the Bible is not God's final word. Jesus is God's final word. And it, and it actually matters in our daily lives and how we, how we do this. Um, I just want to share just a, a, a very personal story. And this seem, might seem silly to you, um, but to me, it's, it's super personal. So every Sunday, so I've been, a, I've been a preacher now for forever. You know, I'm a thousand years old. Um, I'm 52, and I started in full-time ministry when I was 22. Um, so that's 30 years. But when I get up, when I get up to preach on a Sunday morning or at a seminar or back when I was doing stuff at the university, there's a verse that has just meant a lot to me all these years, but it's changed over time. It's changed over time. And I, I, I say this, I said it this morning. This is just, this is just, I just say it to myself. I just says, this comes from second uh, Timothy chapter four. And this is the verse and says, you know, in the presence uh, of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge, preach the word. So that's what I say to myself as sort of just a reminder, like God is speaking, Bill. This is what God is saying to you as you go out to, to, to teach, to preach. Preach the word. And for my first 25 years, I always thought, just teach the Bible. Give these people the Bible. But then I, about five years ago, I realized, I don't think that's actually what it's saying. He says, preach the word. And, and in the Greek, it's the logos. It's not the um, graphe, which is the, the scriptures or the writing. It's no, it's the logos. It's, it's the, the logic, the, uh, the meaning, the essence. In fact, remember who was called the word of God? In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning. And then it starts talking about Jesus. Jesus is the word. And so for me, it's like every Sunday morning now, I, I mean, I'm just recalibrating my mind. Not that the Bible's bad. I love the Bible. And we, you know, what a gift to us. But are we going to use it for justice or injustice? Are we going to use it to love or to fuel our hate. And for me, it's a big difference to preach the Bible versus preaching Jesus. And let me tell you what, it's a lot better preaching Jesus. There's a book um, by Rachel Held Evans for those who are curious about these sorts of conversations that I found immensely helpful. It's very accessible. It's called Inspired. Um, and I think there's a link in the chat if you'd like it, um, just to do some reading, some thinking on these things. But I, I want to close with a picture of how this works in real, quote unquote, real life. Um, and I, I was just impressed, you know, so for the first time ever, 
professional sports, um, they canceled, postponed games. They had a player walkout because mm -hmm. of injustice, because of the, um, uh, the shooting in Kenosha and, you know, the Milwaukee Bucks said, we're, we're not, we can't play. We're, we've got to use our, you know, we have this privilege of, <clears throat> of having a platform. We need to use it to say, this is not okay. When 80% of, of NBA players are black and people like LeBron James are saying, we are scared. To be black in America, it, it is scary for us. And uh, when it came home to, to our LA Dodgers, God's team, in case you were wondering, um, Mookie Betts, uh, who's African-American, he, he said, you know, I, I can't play. I, uh, this is what he said. He says, I have to use my platform to keep the ball rolling. That's, that's what he, and he said, I went and I talked to my teammates. And I said, guys, I'm, I'm not playing tonight in protest about how anti-black our culture is, how dangerous it is, how unjust. And, uh, and so his teammates, you know, had to wrestle with this. You know, this is, this is money. This is fame. This is what they've, you know, the, what they've always wanted. Um, and Clayton, they, they did a, um, the Dodgers did a um, little video in place of playing. Um, Mookie spoke and their manager spoke. And Clayton Kershaw, who's kind of like the team leader, uh, is a big, tall, white guy. Uh, and this is, this is what Clayton Kershaw said. He said, we're supporting black players by not playing. We're supporting the black community and what they're going through. It's as simple as that. We're supposed to love God and love others. It comes with the territory of supporting them. It's part of loving them well. And I just thought, here's Clayton Kershaw, who's claiming to be a Christian. And he's done the math and realized, oh, I'm supposed to love really well. And Here's my friend and teammate who's really like, oh my gosh, this is awful. I need to stand by him. I need to stand by the black community and I'm going to follow their lead. Notice that the oppressed are becoming the protagonists. Mookie Betts, who's black, is saying, no, I'm, I'm stopping. And this is Ruth saying, Boaz, it's time for you to marry me. It's time for us to reorganize your finances to welcome the poor in, into your family, for you to do the justice that's been waiting for you to do for a long time and you have not done. And Boaz responds, right? Ruth is the protagonist. She's the main character. Mookie Betts is the protagonist, the main character. And Clayton Kershaw is saying, I, I, I see it. I see the deep things here. Love God, love people. I'm going to come alongside. And let me tell you, people, this is you. And I don't know where it's you. I don't know. 
But these are the really awkward family conversations that you're called to have. This is how you spend your money. This is what you major in in college. These are job decisions where we say, I'm actually going to go to the Bible as a resource for justice, for loving, for knowing Christ and making him known. And not, not either use it against people or hide behind it. I'm going to respond to the call and follow Jesus.